All right. Well, I'm glad to see everybody make it out. I wasn't sure with the gorgeous weather we had today if everybody would be, you know, sunbathing. <laughs> something. <laughs> All right, so we are in Isaiah 21 tonight. And I'll just be honest with you, we got a lot to cover. So I'm just going to pray for us, and we're going to dive right into it. Sound good? All right. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together tonight, giving us a place that we can gather to worship. And we thank you for the fellowship, for brothers and sisters uh, here and, and online. And Lord, we just pray that you'd uh, bless us, bless the message, help us to understand it, and through it to grow closer to you and understand you better and understand who we can be in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so remember we're in this, uh, this series of uh, burdens or uh, heavy messages that Isaiah has for all the neighboring countries uh, around Israel at the time. And they're, uh, they're the not fun messages. You know, he's basically giving everybody bad news. And so that continues tonight. So, um, so Isaiah 21, verse 1. Says the oracle or burden, depending on your translation, concerning uh, the wilderness of the sea. Uh, this is that was a another name for Babylon at the time. Um, his his audience would have understood that as a name for Babylon. It doesn't really roll off the tongue for us, but basically the great plain of Babylon had it was full of lakes and marshes, and so they they called it a sea. Uh, in Hebrew, the word sea just means a collection of bodies of water. So anyway, so he's talking about Babylon again. Uh, As windstorms in the Negev sweep in, uh, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. So he says this big storm of some kind is coming to Babylon out of the desert, out of a terrifying land. Uh, Verse 2, a harsh uh, vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously. And the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. So again, he's, he's prophesying again about the destruction of Babylon. And what I know that we keep beating this, but um, I can't stress it enough how interesting it is that he's talking about this when it's a hundred years before Babylon even becomes Babylon, really, you know, before they become a world power. And he's already talking about their destruction, right? Before they've even risen to power, he's already seen how it's going to end. He's writing somewhere around like 730 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood. And Babylon falls in 539 B.C. So it's a couple centuries away from the time that he's writing. But he mentions a couple people groups here. He says, go up Elam. Uh, This is... uh, southern Persia, and then Media would be like northern Persia. But he doesn't call them Persians because at that time, that's not what they were called. The word Persian means horsemen, and they weren't really known for that yet, but they would be. In a couple hundred years, this guy King Cyrus comes along, and he trains his armies to ride horses, and it changes the landscape uh, permanently. You know, once, once armies start riding on horses, 
It's a new ball game. And it leads to the rise of this thing called the Medo-Persian Empire. And so that's what Isaiah is talking about. He just ha- isn't using the name Persian because nobody used that word yet. So remember, he's, he's recounting a vision, right? He started out, he says, this is the vision I had of this terrible thing that's going to happen. So the next few verses uh, is a little confusing because he's, he's recounting this vision, and I believe he sees this part of the vision through the eyes of someone in particular uh, who is there when Babylon falls. So, we'll, uh, so he's you know basically like, have you ever had a dream where you were like somebody else in the dream? Or am I the only weirdo that has those dreams? Yeah, and so you know, he's seeing things through this person's eyes. Uh, I believe it's Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, but we'll see. Uh, verse 3, it says, For this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I'm so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. He says, I'm just scared to death and so bad that my, my gut hurts. Verse 4, my mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. Rise up, captains, oil the shields. The night that Babylon falls, something horrifying happens. Uh, Belshazzar, he knew the enemy was approaching, but he was so confident in his defenses that uh, he held a big party rather than being out on the battlefield. And so he gathered a thousand of his nobles together, and they're drinking and partying. And, and to impress them, he brings out all the gold and silver cups that his father had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. And they use these cups to, to toast their false gods. Then it gets weird. In Daniel chapter 5, we'll read a couple verses here. Verse 5 says, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. So he sees this disembodied hand, right? Verse 6, Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. And it goes on and basically describes the stuff Isaiah just said. Right? He's terrified, and rightly so. And he, so none of his wise men can interpret what this ghost hand, basically, is writing on the wall. Uh, and so someone says, well, there's this guy Daniel that your dad used to listen to. Uh, and they bring him in, uh, and Daniel reads it. It's Mene Mene Tekel Farson, I believe. And it's basically, it just means you've been weighed and measured on the scales and found wanting. And so your kingdom is going to go bye-bye. That's the the modern translation. So he gets this message. uh, Daniel, you know, gives him such bright news, right? Uh, But he just says, look, you've been weighed and measured, and you don't measure up, right? I'm so thankful that, that Jesus paid for my sin, wiped out that debt, because I know the scales would never be in my favor. Anyway, so we'll go back here. Isaiah 21, uh, verse 5. 
I'm going to read the second half of the verse. Because, you know, sometimes when they would break these verses up in your Bible, they're kind of guessing where's the right spot to to make a new verse. And I think they kind of missed it here. Because the second half of verse 5 says, Rise up, captains, oil the shields. Right? He's been talking about how scared he is. And then he says, Rise up, oil the shields. But most of the shields at that time were leather, and you would oil them to keep it, you know, uh, ready for battle and also make arrows and stuff kind of less likely to penetrate it. So he says, you know, get ready for battle. Verse 6, For thus the Lord says to me, Go, station the lookout, uh, let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower. And I'm stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. O my threshed people, and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. So the near fulfillment, because remember Isaiah, he loves to deal in dual fulfillment. His thing, his, the stuff he prophesied meant something to his audience in the short term and then also had some long-term implications. The near fulfillment is that the Babylonian Empire falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. That's what happened in history. You notice he said, look for horsemen, because that's going to be a new thing, an army that comes in riding horses, and that they weren't ready for it. But the far fulfillment, in Revelation 14, verse 8, I think, and then in chapter 18, we see the same language, the same wording, and this is when John is describing the, the, econ- the collapse of the, the new Babylonian empire, right? The, the economic world system. And it, so there's another watchman during that time. Revelation 18, verse 1, it says, After these things I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So Isaiah, what he prophesied uh, happened shortly after his time, but it's going to happen again. And they're going to say the same thing. This empire that we thought could not fall is falling. Go back to Isaiah 21, verse 11. You get another oracle. It says, the oracle concerning Edom. Does anybody remember what country that is today? That's That's Jordan a little country next to Israel. The oracle concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir, Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? In other words, how much time is left? You've been watching. How much time do we have? Verse 12, the watchman says, Morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. It's confusing. 
But he basically says, look, it's nighttime, you're right. The morning is coming. That's the good news, right? The morning is coming, but there's also more night coming. The world is, the world is getting brighter and darker at the same time. I believe we, we see that today, right? It, there's never been a better time in history to be alive than today. And it's never been easier to commit evil than today. The gospel is spread far and wide over the whole planet. People, the other side of the planet may be watching this message right now from a little church in Nowheresville, Indiana. That's an amazing thing. But it's easier than ever to be evil. It's more acceptable maybe than ever. So there's morning and night happening at the, at the same time. Paul talked about this a little bit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says this, uh, verse 1, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Right? You don't need to be like these people that are saying, how much time is left? Are we in the, the last days? You know how many times have we've had that question uh, posed to us here recently. Verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. In other words, it's going to happen when you don't think it's going to happen. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness so then let us not sleep as others do but let us be alert and sober for those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night but since we are of the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation right the time of darkness is almost over but don't fall asleep Right? That's what the watchman is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Don't, don't fall asleep. Don't get so comfortable with the darkness. Right? We belong in the light. You need to remember it right? and stay in the light. Isaiah 21, verse 12. We'll read that again. He says, The watchman says, Morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. He's basically saying, look, don't just ask me questions. Come back to me. And then ask all you want. Pastor Chris started the book of James on, on Sunday and... Uh, in the first few verses, James says that, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He wants you to know. But he goes on to say, but he must ask in faith without doubting. Right? In other words, like, ask me, but then when I give you the answer, take it as the answer, right? And apply it. 
Sometimes we do that. We, we pray about something, and, and then God has answered the prayer. He just didn't answer it the way you wanted. So you're like, no, I need to keep praying because I haven't gotten an answer. No, it, it was no. That was the answer, you know. Or, or you come across a, a, a scripture that clearly tells you whether that thing you're wondering about is, is okay or not. And then we don't want to hear what he has to say. So he's, he's saying to the, the watchman says, you know, come and ask, but come to me and really take what I give you as an answer. Verse 13, it says, the oracle about Arabia. So we're just cruising through the oracles tonight. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. Meet the fugitive with bread. I'll be honest, Isaiah has been kicking my tail. Uh, I've had to study more stuff than I'm used to, uh, particularly geography. Uh, I realized I am terrible at it. Um, you know, I was looking at some maps. And you, you should do this. Pull up a map of the Middle East and, and look and see just how close some countries are together. You know, there's a conflict going on um, over in, uh, you know, Russia and, and uh, Ukraine. And, to, you know, in my mind, that's like the North Pole. You know, because that's Russia is way up there, right? Until you look at a map and go, oh, Russia is like right next to Iran, part of it. It's right next to Turkey. It's, it's all right there, right by Israel. Um, anyway, so, I'm not talking about Russia tonight, but these uh, two groups he's me he mentions here are different tribes that were part of what's now Saudi Arabia, Right? And again, Saudi Arabia to me is, I was like, okay, it's just another, you know, desert country. And then I realized, oh, it's enormous, right? Um, but at the time, Saudi Arabia was a bunch of nomadic tribes and territories that did not get along with each other. And so he mentions these, these uh, Dedanites, that's the northern part of Saudi Arabia, and then Tima is the southern part. And verse 15, it says, For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. So the Dedanites have been attacked, and they're fleeing. The Assyrians are invading Saudi Arabia at that time. And the Dedanites have to flee. And they come into kind of hostile territory. The, the people of Tima are not their friends. And they have a choice to make. Are we going to view these people as enemies or are we going to welcome them as refugees? Verse 16, For thus the Lord said to me, In a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. Kedar was the biggest tribe in Saudi Arabia. They were the biggest military power at the time. And so probably... Dedan and Tima were both kind of assuming Kedar would be, you know, like insulate them from Assyria. They'll deal with the military conflict. It'll never get here. And Isaiah says, no, within a year, that tribe is going to be wiped out. So it's coming your way. 
It cracks me up how he says this. In a year as a hired man would count it. In other words, like, we all know exactly when it's time to clock out, right? He's like, it's not, like, roughly a year. It, you know, it'll be within a year exactly. Um, verse 17, And the remainder of the number of bowmen, the, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. So they were kind of depending on Kedar to, you know, to, to guard them from this invasion, and it doesn't happen. They're wiped out pretty handily. Uh, Sargon, the, the king of Assyria, he invades uh, Saudi Arabia in 716 B.C. and ha- has completely overtaken it by 715 B.C. So within a year, he, he overtakes this territory that's about the size of half of the United States. It's pretty impressive. But, I don't know, when I was reading through this, I'm like, kind of struck by a couple things. You know, these, these tribes, they, they had a choice to make, right? They had to, they could have band together and probably at least stood a better chance. They didn't do that. Then once everything starts to fall apart, they have a choice of, you know, do we take this as an opportunity to strike down one of our enemies? Or do we take this as an opportunity to show love and mercy to these people? It's really easy to forget who the real enemy is, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Second Timothy chapter 2. In the, in the New Living, I like how Paul says this. Verse 24, he says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to who? Everyone. That alone, I'm like, dang it. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Right? We get angry at those who oppose the truth. He says, no, gently instruct them. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Satan is the real enemy. Uh, In the meantime, Tima got it right. Bring water for the thirsty. Meet the fugitive with bread. Isaiah 22, we're going we're gonna to try to get through this. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. This is another name for Jerusalem. Uh, what is the matter with you now that you've all gone up to the housetops? You who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. In other words, you know, you're... You're wasting away, you're falling, but it's, nobody did it to you. Verse 3, all your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow, and all of you who were found were taken captive together, though they have fled far away. So 
few chapters back, we were talking about Assyria. Assyria is the big baddie in Isaiah, right? They're the big threat. And they captured the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C., carried them away into captivity. Uh, now they, they've come to the southern kingdom. That's what Isaiah is describing. And they besiege Jerusalem. They surround the city and basically are going to starve them out. Verse 4 says, Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. In other words, Isaiah says, God is involved in this, people. We brought this on ourselves, but God is involved in the middle of it. And he's heartbroken. He says, don't even try to comfort me. He's heartbroken, even though he's been telling them what's coming. He's heartbroken. I think, you know, if you're not heartbroken about someone's sin, you shouldn't be pointing it out. If you're not, if you're not brokenhearted for the condition of somebody, you have no business trying to instruct them or trying to tell them what they should be doing differently. But if it breaks your heart, like it breaks God's heart, then absolutely. That's, you know, that's ministry. I was thinking about the, the Last Supper. Jesus, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And... Uh, He's the only one who, for one, even pointed it out that their feet were dirty. And he's the only one that stepped forward to wash their feet. And I think, you know, we're quick to point out the dirt. And I don't think we should point it out unless we're willing to get down and help them wash their feet. Anyway, Isaiah is heartbroken for his people. Verse 6, it says, Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. So these are two different people groups from far and wide. But remember, Assyria, their big thing is they would incorporate all of these people that they captured into their military, and they would relocate people so you had no sense of, of home or, or nationality other than to serve the king of Assyria. And so these people are brought in from far and wide to surround Jerusalem. Verse 7, Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. And he removed the defense of Judah. In that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. That's a, the name for another building that Solomon built. It was basically their armory. So you depended on your weapons. Verse 9, and you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool, and then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend on him who made it. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. So they did some... It's, it was okay that they, you know, they had weapons. It was okay that they, you know, patched up holes in the wall and, and fortified the city. And then he describes this, uh, they made a reservoir between two walls. This is a really cool thing. King Hezekiah uh, 
cut, it's a made, like an engineering marvel, they cut through solid rock 1,777 feet from both sides of the outside of Jerusalem down to the Gihon Spring. And they basically made an aqueduct to bring water into the city to the Pool of Siloam from outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And then they covered the, the, the Gihon Spring so that when the Assyrians get there, they don't see how Israel could possibly last because they don't, they don't have water, right? There's no way they could outlast us. But Israel had, uh, or Jerusalem had, had fresh water. It was amazing. You can still go there today and see the, the tunnels. But. So there's nothing wrong with being prepared. That's not what God is... Uh, uh, you know, chastising them for. But he says, you forgot the one who planned all this ahead of time, who made sure that you, you have fresh water. You know, David said, what, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. Nothing wrong with being prepared, but if you're not bringing got into the, the mix of the plans, it's, it's doomed to fail. Verse 12, it says, Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. He says, I, you should be in mourning for the, the condition of your country, and instead you guys are acting like it, everything's okay. Partying down. He talks about killing of cattle. You know, the way they ate meat at that time is way different than how we do it now. Um, that meat was a special occasion type of thing, especially beef. Uh, if they were following the, the law, it all had to be eaten within like two days, I think it was. So if you kill a cow, you better have some friends. Because, you know, a lot of it's going to go to waste, right? But he's, you know, he says, you, instead of humbling yourselves and seeking my face, right, uh, you've, you've forgotten me. The, the people say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. It was an expression at the time. That basically, just no thought of the future, right? Today is all there is, so get what you can while you can. Verse 14, but the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. In the New Testament, we're, we're called to something different, right? We're to die daily, right? Die to ourselves. That when we lose our life for his sake, then we find it. Instead, these people were living for today, right? And just trying to get every bit of life out of the day, not thinking about uh, the life to come. Now, there's one more section I want to try to hit. There's this, uh, remember, G uh, Isaiah loves to deal in these dual fulfillment things, and this is a cool one. Verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. 
What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a, a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb out of, on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. All right, Shema is a real guy uh, who was in charge of the treasury, or the, he was basically like the head of the economy in, in Israel. And apparently he uh, misused the funds a little bit. He's tried to build like a monument or a, a sepulcher to himself. And he, uh, he conspired to, to betray Israel and make a deal with uh, Sennacherib. Uh, it's not a good guy, right? And he's being called out for it. He's a real person, but I also believe he's a picture of the Antichrist. And here's why. We see this throughout the Old Testament. You'll see types or, you know, people who represent something about Jesus or something about um, the Antichrist. The Antichrist, we're talking about the fall of Babylon in the last days. Babylon is the world economic system. He's going to be the guy in charge of the economy, right? To the point where he'll get to decide whether you can buy or sell anything, right? If you don't have this mark, this mark of mine, then you won't be able to participate in my economy. And he's going to build a monument to himself and, and demand to be worshipped. Verse 17, Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man, and he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country there you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be, your, uh, you shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. And then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So, we've got a, a guy who I believe represents the Antichrist. Along comes this other guy, Eliakim, who represents the Christ. Right? His name means God raises. He's a real guy. You can read about him in Chronicles, 2 Kings 18. Um, but here's why I say he's a picture of Christ. Verse 21. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now check this out in verse 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. The key of the house of David. Back in Isaiah 9, the, the government will be on his shoulder. Jesus bore the cross on his shoulders. He bore our sin upon the cross. But there's some unique language there. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is addressing the church of um, is it Philadelphia. Yeah. Verse 7 Oh, yeah, there it is in, the, in that verse. 
Uh, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. We'll go back to Isaiah 22. Just a couple more verses. This is what he says about this servant that he's going to send. This, this servant who has the keys to the house of David on his shoulder. Verse 23 says, I will drive him like a peg or a nail, depending on your translation, in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. Jesus carried the load of all my sin. All our sins, big and small. Everything in between to the cross. He was nailed to the cross. His body was broken. And our sin was done away, he says. It will be cut off. I, think, I just think it's beautiful. This is a, a time of where people are terrified. Isaiah's audience, they're not sure if this is the end for them. It sure seems like the world is in chaos and there is no hope, right? And he says, no, that's, there's one coming who can bear all of this. And because he is going to bear it, because he bore it for you, you can get through this. Just don't get so busy building walls uh, that you miss the open doors that he places in your life. And for Pete's sake, bring water to the thirsty, bread to the fugitive. Right. Be a light in this darkness. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you again for giving us the opportunity to study your word. Uh, just as the times that Isaiah was living in, uh, people were uncertain, things were scary, there were wars and rumors of wars. Lord, we're living through the same thing today. We're constantly assaulted with media, um, people trying to tell us who we should and shouldn't support and, and who the good guys are and the bad guys are, and, and it just it's so confusing. But Lord, we just pray that you would give us clarity, give us discernment, and Lord, that we would not lose ourselves in the midst of of trying times, that we would bring water to the thirsty, that we would bring, bring bread to the fugitive, that we would be a light 
that we would remember who the true enemy is and remember that you overcame and we can overcome through you. Lord, we pray for your blessing on your people, on your church. And we pray you come and come quickly. And all God's people said, ready? Break. All right.